If I wanted to do a study about suffering and I was just going to go to one book, First Peter would be the book. Although it only has five chapters, it has, has paragraphs just full of what it means to suffer as a child of God and what it means for the suffering of Jesus Christ. So this morning I, I want us just to think along that line of thought. Uh, it's not a complete answer, I will tell you that, because Scripture has much more to say about good coming from suffering and why we suffer and many questions about why we will never have answers for. But God's Word does want us to have an understanding of what it means to suffer in this life. So I'm going to read the text first. And uh, if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to keep them open. And if you don't have one, I'd really encourage you to bring them uh, because it's good just to open your Bible and, and hold it in your hands and see what God's Word says to you. But First Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, he says, Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet you do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Now I know as I begin this text this morning that what Peter is really talking about is when we suffer for what is good or we suffer for righteousness sake. And the early recipients of this letter and, and many believers in other lands, they do. They suffer for being zealous for good and they suffer as well for righteousness sake. And here in Woodward, uh, we, we may suffer in that way occasionally. But a lot of the suffering we do does not fall within those parameters. But I do know this, a lot of the suffering that you and I deal with is not because we're evil. It's not because we've done something evil. It's simply because we live in a broken world and because we live in a broken sinful world, then we also sometimes suffer. We suffer at the loss of loved ones. We, we suffer at relationships being broken. We have emotional suffering. We, we suffer physical. And we could probably go on with the list. But like I said, it's not always because something evil we have done. So I want to encourage you to think this morning as I share this text. Uh, don't, don't say and don't think, well, you know, I, I'm not really suffering for, for good, so this really doesn't apply to me. Because I really believe the truths that I want to share with you this morning will apply to that type of suffering as well. Okay? So I want you to see yourselves in this. Not that I want you to pray for suffering. Don't do that. Don't seek suffering. But if you've been around very long, you're going to suffer sometime. And if you haven't suffered, I don't want to discourage you, but you probably will. Suffering is just part of our existence in this life. We just want to make sure... When we suffer, it's not because we have done evil. Okay? So let's pray together, and we're going to get right into this text. Lord God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this opportunity for us to gather and to worship. Lord, I, I just pray about this text and the scriptures that we're going to share this morning, that 
Lord, you just might pierce our hearts with them, that you will speak to us through your word. And Lord, it might be that you would reveal, illuminate things to people in this text that I don't even touch on, but God, that you would minister to us through this word today. Lord, we do again lift up our brothers who are on the other side of the world. We pray for their protection, but Lord, we also pray that just doors of opportunity will be thrown open for them. God, that you will precede them and, and you will prepare the way for them. And there will be people who, whose hearts will be open to the truth of the gospel. Lord, we know, we know that there will be people from that country in heaven because you have promised us that there will be people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And we just cling to that truth, Lord. And just help us understand your timing as these men are there sharing and living their lives. God, I again this morning with this text, Encourage us, comfort us, challenge us, Father. Convict us, whatever you need to do to, to conform us, to grow us into Christ-likeness. And we pray this for your honor and for your glory. So what good can come from suffering? And when can good come from suffering? Well, you notice in our text when we got started here, he starts out with a question. That's kind of a rhetorical question. In other words, he really doesn't expect an answer. He asks this question really to have an effect on the hearers. And he says to them, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? It's kind of like what Paul asked over in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, when he said, If God be for us, who can be against us? Now, you might just pick out those two verses and say, Man, those two guys, they, they live with their head in the sky, you know. They, they live this pie-in-the-sky life if they don't think there's anyone against us, if, if they don't think that suffering or harm is a part of our life. Well, they understood that. But what they're trying to say to us, <clears throat> excuse me, in the context of those verses, is listen, just because we suffer doesn't mean that we lose. Okay? He's trying to say, listen, even in the midst of suffering, Good can come from that. Now the second part of verse 13 is a conditional clause. He said, if you are zealous for what is good. Alright? And, and this is really the kind of the foundation of the statements that he's making about suffering here. Zealous means to be very passionate about something. Uh, it means to be on fire about something. The word really has a political overtone to, overtone to it, the zealots. You remember them? Jesus had a disciple who was a part of that group, and they were a group of individuals that they would go to any extreme. They would make any sacrifice to see that Israel would be free from Roman control. Well, this scripture is calling us to that same passion. He is calling us to be on fire for what is good. He is calling us to be willing to make any sacrifice for what is good. And then he carries that thought Right on the end of verse 14. Do you notice that verse 14, if you have your Bible, or if, yeah, it's on the screen behind me, it starts with a conjunction, but. In other words, he's saying, now listen, here's this thought about who's going to harm you if you're zealous for good, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake. So he carries this same thought into this next test about being good, about being righteous. But listen, that doesn't mean you're not going to suffer. He says, even if you suffer for righteousness' sake. That word righteous is a great word. Starts way back in the Old Testament. 
It's, it's a word that they would go to a riverbank and they would find the longest and the straightest reed they could find. And then they would use that reed and when they would build a wall or they'd build a fence, they'd hold that reed up against it and it was the standard of what was straight. It was the standard of what was right. Well, in the Scriptures, God is righteous. God is the standard. God is the one by which we measure ourselves and our truth and our doctrine. So in our lives, if we're wondering if something is good, we're wondering what type of decision we should make, what is the standard? What is the right standard? Well, we go to God. We go to God's character. We go to God's Word, and we discover that which is righteous. Well, what is the blessing? What good comes from it if you're zealous for good? You know, we have in our mind, listen, if we're good, good will come back to us, right? He says, if we're zealous for good, if someone harms you, being zealous for good, if you suffer for righteousness' sake, what good can possibly come from that? He says, you will be blessed. Now, I know some of you here, I've been with some of you through suffering, through loss, and through illness, and, and different things. And I've seen in your lives, and we have experienced as individuals, that this is true. In the midst of suffering, we can be blessed. That, that blessed does not mean just happy. That blessed does not mean just joyous. And I know there's some scriptures that translate it that way. But actually, it is a state of well-being. It is a state of well-being because of the relationship that we are in with God. It is the exact same words that Jesus used over Matthew chapter 5 when he shared the Beatitudes there in the Sermon on the Mount. And verses 10 through 12 really relate to this verse, these scriptures. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Suffering should not be our goal for being zealous for good. Suffering should not be our goal for, for righteousness' sake. But he is saying, listen... We can be blessed in our suffering. Now, I know that sounds totally out of this world, and it is out of this world. It's not a physical truth. It is a spiritual truth because of the relationship that God's children have with Him. Now, the health and wealth gospel, they will say, listen, you're blessed because you'll never suffer. But God's Word says, listen, it's very likely you will suffer and in that suffering, you will be blessed. You may be going through a situation in your life right now, and you're thinking, even as I share this, that, man, you know, Gary, I, I don't really feel all that blessed. Well, I understand that. I really do. I've probably I've been right there with those times in my own life before. But what I would say to you this morning is, listen, don't go by what you feel, Okay? Go by what God's Word says. Go by the promises of God. It is a faith issue. It is a faith issue when we get 
into suffering? Are we going to be people who focus on our suffering? Are we going to be focusing on the relationship that we have with God and the promises that He has given us? If so, we can understand what it means. You shall be blessed. What else does it tell us? Well, this, this next thought, I'm really starting at the end of verse 14 instead of verse 15 because you, if you have your Bible open, you'll notice the sentence ends after will be blessed and a new sentence starts right there. He says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Okay? Have no fear of them. Don't be troubled. What usually is the first thing that attacks you when you begin to suffer? Fear and trouble, isn't it? Because they know, our enemies know that in the midst of suffering, that fear of the unknown, what, what's going to come from this? And right along with fear comes what? Trouble, which means to be tossed about in our emotions and tossed about in our thoughts. And I imagine again, every one of us have probably been right there. But God's Word tells us, listen, do not fear them. Have no fear of them who can bring harm to your life. Jesus again over in Matthew chapter 10, verses 26 through 31. L listen to this scripture or, or, or see these words. So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will be, not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Are two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Again, the fourth time. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus, over and over again, in that scripture he says to us, Fear not, fear not, fear not. In fact, I've been told, 365 times in God's Word, one for every day, there's a verse that says, Fear not, do not be troubled. Remember John chapter 14, verse 1? Let not your hearts be troubled. How? Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. Uh, verse 27 of the same chapter. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. So God's word constantly tells us that we can do the impossible. And we can do the impossible when our faith is toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Because do you see that? He says, but, verse 15, so don't fear them, don't be troubled, but in your hearts, Honor Christ, the Lord, as holy. Probably if you're about my age, you probably memorized that in the King James. And it says, sanctify the Lord in your heart, which means to set 
the Lord apart, to set him apart. Same idea as the word holy. But we know our heart is that part of us, that, that inner part of our being where we re- fellowship with God and we relate to God and where the issues of life come out of us. So he's saying, listen, get that word but. You know, I always tell people when you do Bible studies, don't miss the little words. The word but here is really important, okay? So it says, don't fear, don't be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your heart. What's he talking about? To me, he's talking about lordship. He's talking about fill your life with the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you are filled with the Lord Jesus Christ, He controls your life, He controls your walk, He controls your talk, He controls your emotions and your thoughts. So instead of a heart filled with fear and trouble, we have a heart filled with the indwelling Holy Spirit, with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And dear brothers and sisters, you cannot fill something with two things. When you feel something, you feel it holy. It is one thing. And the Lord Jesus Christ, when He fills us, He crowds out and He pushes out fear and He pushes out the troubles that, that upset us and cause us to be tossed about. I love Philippians chapter 4. It's not on the screen. It just came to mind. But it says basically, Be anxious for nothing, but with praise and thanksgiving let all your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God shall rule your heart. And why I think about that is that word rule. That is like referee. In other words, it's saying the Lord God referees our heart. And you notice two words there? Thoughts or mind and heart. What's that? Thoughts and emotions. When God is in control of our heart, He controls our thoughts, He controls our emotion, and we are not tossed to and fro. So when we practice the Lordship of Jesus Christ, good can come from suffering. What is this good? Well, he goes on in this verse. He says, always, which means anytime, be prepared, which means don't wait until it comes. You know, right now, brothers and sisters, we should be living our life and preparing ourselves to make a defense. We know what make a defense means, doesn't it? You, you watch court TV, or if you've ever been in court, you know what it means to make a defense. You stand up, and there are witnesses, and there are evidence that you call to say that something is true. Well, he says we need to be to able to make a defense to anyone who asks. Anyone. Our neighbor who comes up and asks us. They, they might not say it exactly, what's your hope? They, they might say, what? what keeps you sane in the middle of all that? You know, they may ask it differently. But our neighbor, when, when they come and ask, or, or some of those folks who come knocking on our door, you know, and, and they want to share with us what they believe, we should be able to make a defense to those individuals for the hope that is within us to anyone. Hope here is present and future. Uh, future, of course, and this is important, future affects our present. What we believe about the future affects us right here and now, especially in the midst of suffering. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses uh, 16 through 18, so we do not lose heart. Okay, he, if you would read this chapter, he's going through all kind of stuff. He's being afflicted, perplexed, uh, despairing, persecuted. And then he comes to verse 16, We do not lose heart. How? 
Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transit, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So Paul is saying there, we go through all this perplexity, all this persecution, but you know what? We don't lose heart. And we don't lose heart because we know what's going on now is working within us for what? A greater glory. You know, uh, some of you have seen the pictures of the old scales, you know, where they put stuff in this bowl and it goes down. And that's kind of what he's saying there. Listen, here's all this persecution and all this stuff. And man, it tries to weigh me down. But when I stop and think about the hope that I have in Jesus Christ. And it affects me so much in my life today that, man, those scales just go whop. And, you know, our heart far outweighs all that stuff that we go through in life. Our hope in, the, in our armor is the helmet of our salvation. 1 Timothy 1.1 says Jesus Christ is our hope. Folks, and you stop and think about it. When we go through times of suffering... And when we go through those times of suffering as someone who has hope beyond ourselves, that is when we are most likely for someone to ask us about the hope that we have within us. Now, now I hope it happens in our normal life. But usually when we are really in some type of suffering, some type of illness or, or something that's causing pain to us, and we are living in the midst of that as someone who has hope, that is usually the time when someone might ask us, why do you have this hope? What, what is keeping you sane? How, how are you hanging on? How do you keep living each day? Because we have this hope that goes beyond this world. You know, I was privileged to, to watch this lived out by both my parents. But uh, as I was thinking about this message, I, my thoughts really turned to my mom and some of you some of you here, you knew my mom, and uh, she had cancer. And, of course, back then when she got cancer, there wasn't a whole lot of treatment. There was just a whole lot of cutting. And uh, she had just about everything cut, removed, that, that she could possibly have, just to be serious. And, and she went on with that. And uh, it, it was just a, a really tough time. But through that time, she would go up to the hospitals, and she would visit ladies who were going through the same th thing. She would... Uh, talk to the nurses, she would talk to the doctors, and, and she would just live a life of, of, of hope, a life of fullness in the midst of all that stuff. And, and you know, after she passed away, she was supposed to live only six months, and she lived two years. And we're thankful for the length of time, but we're more thankful for the testimony that she left. Because when I used to live here, not much anymore because people have moved and gone around, but... Man, I would have people come up to me that I had no idea who in the world they were. And they would say, man, we knew your mom. Yeah, man, we knew when she was going through all that difficulty. We, we knew about her suffering. And she was such a witness to us. And her faith was something that, man, we just saw. Folks, that's what we're talking about. In the midst of suffering, we can live our lives as someone who has hope. And when we live our lives like that, we can be a faithful witness to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a good thing that comes out of suffering. Another good thing here is he says, 
about our conscience. He says in verse 16, having a good conscience. That's that part of us that uh, helps us with our moral judgments and our ethical, ethical evaluations and so forth. And uh, when we have a, something come up in life, hopefully we have a good conscience, one that is grounded in the Word of God, and our conscience says, whoa, whoa, don't do that. Or our conscience says, okay, that, that's okay, go ahead. But our conscience is not always our best guide. God's Word over in Titus 1.15 says that we can have a defiled conscience. In other words, we can have a conscience that we do not see through clearly. 1 Timothy 4.2 says we can have a seared conscience. And you know what that is when you take a steak and you throw it on the, the grill and you, you let it really get hot and you sear it. And, and man, it seals those juices in. That's what he's talking about when our conscience gets like that well then we have been sinned against so much that we come to a place where we might even not even notice what's right and we don't even notice what's wrong but then he also says in Hebrews 10 22 that we can have an evil conscience that is a conscience that is so poisoned by sin that it approves of evil that is a conscience that calls good evil and calls evil bad when I think about that I think of a windshield uh, you know, you're driving down the road in a windshield and say you've been out in the fields and your windshield's all dusty and stuff and it starts draining and maybe your windshield wipers don't work really good and man, you can, you can barely see through that thing. That's kind of like a defiled conscience. But if you've ever been in the midst of a sandstorm and maybe the water's involved and man, your windshield gets so clogged up I mean, you cannot hardly see through that thing. That's when that's like that steak. You know, all the juices are sealed in. Well, man, you can't hardly see through that thing. But have you ever been out and been going along and going pretty good and you hit a mud hole, I mean a good mud hole, and that mud hole comes up over your hood and over your windshield and your wipers don't work and you can't see a thing? That's an evil conscience. Okay? So our conscience is not always our best guide. But our conscience can be a good guide if it is based on the truth of the Word of God. Well, what's important about having a good conscience? Well, our Scripture tells us, so that we have a good conscience, so that when, not if, when you are slandered. In other words, when people talk about you with evil intent, it is the idea of someone wanting to stab you in the back. It's not only that they talk bad about you, they want to cause you harm in your life. So when you're slandered, revile your good behavior is the idea of casting insults at you. Remember Jesus when he was at the cro on the cross and they reviled him and they were just casting insults at him, uh, trying to bring shame in his life? Well, chapter 4, verse 14 in 1 Peter again, says, If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory <clears throat> and of God rests upon you. You see what he's saying there? When, when people slander you and when people cast insults at you, you are blessed if you have a good conscience. In other words, what they're saying about you is lies. Okay, John chapter 15 deals with this as well. You know, I don't know why as believers we think that we're supposed to live life in a rose garden uh, because Jesus made it very clear in John and many other places that our life was not going to be like that. He said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. 
If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Folks, there are always going to be people who bring false accusations against you, especially if you are a person who lives their lives by Christian standards. You do your business as a Christian. You live your family life by Christian values. There are always going to be someone who's going to be falsely talking against you. And the worst thing you can do is become like them and start talking evil back against them. Because God's Word says we are not only supposed to have an answer, but we're supposed to have the right attitude. Over in verse 17, we look down at verse 17. Well, let me jump back to 2. Chapter 2, verse 12. Like I said, 1 Peter is just full of stuff about uh, suffering. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, listen to this, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You hear that? It's going to backfire on them. They're going to be meaning evil against you. They're going to be bringing lies against you, but it's going to backfire on those individuals. They are going to be the ones, according to God's words, that is shamed, not you. Now, it's interesting, that verse I just read. It's really got a two, two interpretations. I know only one can be right, but two interpretations really come with that verse. One, that day of visitation, meaning the day the Holy Spirit will come, bring conviction in their life. They'll see Jesus Christ in all their glory, and they will trust Him. And not only will they trust Him, but they'll also see how they have talked falsely against you. The other way is the day of visitation being the day Jesus returns and judges all mankind. Then they will know. Then they will be shamed. But whichever way that is, you know, in my heart, I really hope it's the first one. I really hope they come to Christ. But whichever way it is, they're going to be the ones who are shamed, not you. Then verse 17 kind of sums up this paragraph of 13 through 16. Um, he says, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. That is an uncomfortable thought for a lot of people. A lot of people I have found through the years do not like the idea that suffering has anything to do with God's will. They just don't like it. You know, it, it's, when you talk about suffering, you say, of course, I never go to somebody that's suffering and say, well, it's just God's will. You know, I don't do that. But God's Word says that. God's Word says, you know, sometimes suffering is just in line with God's will. You know, John Piper, you, you hear his name a lot. And I would really encourage you, if you're, if you're dealing with this issue, to, there's a book, in fact, it's over at 5th Street, it may be here. It's called Sovereignty and The Sovereignty of God and Suffering. A little light blue book. And I, I would really encourage you to find that or, or just, like I said, do a study in 1 Peter. And just see what God's Word says about God's will and suffering. See, like I said earlier, we like to think, man, if I just do good, good's going to come back to me. And a lot of times it will. A lot of times if, if you live your life and, and you do good and, and you're serving people the way Christ would have you serve people and you're serving the Lord as, as you, He would have you serve Him, but 
as he said, even then we suffer for righteousness' sake. See, brothers and sisters, sometimes, man, we just have to understand that. And, you, and let me throw this at you. You know the good thing about understanding that the idea of suffering in line with God's will? When God is in control, it gives our suffering uh, purpose. And instead of our life just bouncing from event to event to event with no meaning, no purpose, when we understand the sovereignty of God, everything we go through in life, it gives it meaning. Even when we suffer, and we understand that God is still God, even in the midst of our suffering, it can give meaning to that suffering. So he said, even sometimes in accordance with God's will for doing good. You know, I would encourage you to remember that God does not always settle his accounts at the end of each month. Sometimes it's in eternity when God finally settles his accounts, but he always makes all things right. And in this life, we just have to live our life in a way that we are trusting him. Over in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, Again, I'd, I'd really encourage you to read the whole chapter, but I can just read a couple of verses to you. But listen to, to Paul's attitude toward this. Verse 3, That no one be moved by these afflictions. He's talking about his afflictions that he's going through, okay? That no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction. See, Paul understood that. And when he faced that in his life, he didn't throw his hands up in there and say, Oh my goodness, where is God? Doesn't God love me anymore? God, doesn't God care about me anymore? Probably some of us have done that. Probably more of us than like to admit it. But you know, we do cry out to God. And God, where are you in the midst of this? And see, the assurance we get from this verse is, listen, God has not forgotten you. God is in control, and that means we need to come to him, and we need to trust him. So good can come from suffering in the form of our heart, not being filled with fear and filled with trouble. We, we can be a faithful witness in the midst of suffering, and, and we can have a good conscience when we suffer understanding who God is. What is the last thing in verse 18? I, I couldn't leave this message without verse 18 because the, the greatest good comes from the suffering of Jesus Christ, doesn't it? In fact, this verse is probably a sermon in itself. Well, it is. But For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive, in the spirit. Far. Again a little word. But a little word that shows us it connects these two paragraphs. That Jesus Christ. You know he, he didn't live a posh easy life. He didn't live in a castle. Far. He also suffered. It connects these two paragraphs together. We suffered but you know what? He also suffered. And a lot of his suffering was just like us. That's why he is our high priest because he has suffered and he has been tempted even as we have been tempted.
So, so he hungered, didn't he? And, and he suffered rejection and he suffered loneliness and he suffered physically and with being tired and being hungry and being thirsty and being without sleep. But, but this suffering is so different than verse 18 because our suffering doesn't nearly come into the realm of the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ as verse 18 is talking about because this is talking about the cross this is talking about when he was humiliated and he was mocked and he had insults cast at him. He's talking about all this happened to him and the nails in his hands and the nails in his feet and the spear in his side and the thorns shoved into his scalp. He suffered all that. And folks, he did not suffer it because he deserved suffering. He did not do it because he had done evil, but he suffered because he was zealous for God. He was zealous for good. He suffered, friends, because he knew the righteous standard and he met the righteous standard of God. See, folks, he is one who, who knew what God's will was and his whole life, his whole ministry was pointed to the fulfillment of God's will, which was a cross. He understood that. And he willingly went to the cross. The Scripture says, For he also suffered once, not meaning that he just died one time, which he did. You know, when we take the Lord's Supper, we're not making Jesus suffer again. He suffered once, which means he suffered final, complete, sufficient. It means we cannot add works. We cannot add the law. We cannot add being good. We cannot add our own self-sacrificing or even our own suffering. Only the, the suffering of Jesus Christ could satisfy God. And he went to the cross, folks. And what did he go to the cross for? This verse tells us, for sins. Here, the one who is sinless, the one who laid aside his glory, his equality with the Father in heaven, he laid it aside. And Philippians 2 says, he took the form of a servant, which means a body of flesh. And he came, he was born into this world by incarnation, he lived a life of perfection. He lived his life in line with that standard of righteousness, that standard of God. He lived that perfect, sinless life. He lived that life that you and I, we could not live. He suffered for sins. Different, we are the ones who are sinners. We are the ones who have dark hearts. We are the ones who were spiritually dead and spiritually blind. We were the ones who were the enemies of God. We were the ones who were rejecting Jesus Christ. But He died for sins. Look, the righteous, the righteous Jesus meeting the standard of God, the righteous for the unrighteous, for every person who ever walked on the face of this earth except for the Lord Jesus Christ. We are all sinners. We all deserve death. We all deserve separation from God. None of us have met the standards of God. Only Jesus Christ. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. The righteous for the unrighteous. Substitution. When you think of substitution, we often think about basketball. It's basketball season. One guy gets off the bench, he runs in, and another runs out. That's substitution. That's really a kind of a weak picture of the substitution of Jesus Christ dying in our place. Because Jesus Christ, when he died in our place, 
It wasn't just like getting off a bench and taking our place in a game. When he took our place, he took our place suffering. Chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21 is another great verse. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Think about his suffering. The righteous for the unrighteous. And he took our sins so that through repentance and faith in him, we might take on his righteousness. Substitution. There's no other suffering like the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. But look at that next phrase in that verse. That he might bring us to God. Reconciliation. We were separated from God by sin. And Jesus Christ came, willingly placed himself on a cross that he might reconcile us. He might build a bridge to bring us together to the Father. And he alone can bring us to God. He alone can restore the relationship that God intended in the garden. Reconciliation. You remember the scripture when Jesus Christ died on the cross? And one of the things happened, there was this thick curtain that would hang between the Holy of Holies and the other court. No one could ever go into the Holy of Holies, the representation of the presence of God there, but only the high priest could go in with blood, and he would go in with blood, and he would sprinkle it. But on the day that Jesus Christ died on the cross, when there was an earthquake, the scripture says it wasn't the earthquake that did it, but that curtain from top to bottom was ripped apart opening the way that we might be to, taken to God, that he might bring us to God. See, folks, Christ came and suffered. And you know what? I know our suffering does not have the same effect that the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ did. Only Christ could suffer in such a way that we could be redeemed. But when we suffer, when we suffer, when we suffer rightly, then God can be honored. God can be glorified. Romans chapter 5, and I'll close with these verses. Verses 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ 
through whom we have now received reconciliation. What a wonderful thing God has done for us. When we rebelled and we turned against God, we were enemies of God, we were not seeking God, God in His grace sent His Son so that He might pay the penalty of our sins, which is death, so that He might bring us to God. And that suffering of Christ still extends into our lives today. I know many of you here today, you have experienced the reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus. You have repented of your sins. You have trusted in Christ. And now empowered by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, you're living your life in a way that brings honor and glory to God. And it doesn't mean it makes suffering easier, but it does mean that in suffering, we don't have to surrender. We don't have to throw in the towel. That good can come from suffering. I know right now some of you are experiencing suffering in your own lives, in your family lives. Man, I, I just encourage you. Let the Spirit of God just fill your heart with the truths of God. And let the truths of God and the presence of God shove out fear and shove out trouble. Let that future hope just make today glorious because of the hope that you have in Christ Jesus. But then very likely there's some here that you've, you've never entered into a relationship with Christ. Not yet. I hope it's a not yet. And I would pray for you that God would just bring conviction in your life. That you would understand that what Christ has done for you. For eternity and for this life. What he's done for you. I would pray today that the Spirit of God would seek you out. He would bring conviction to your heart. He would con bring conviction about your sin. That he would convince you about the truth of Jesus Christ. That he suffered and died for you. That you might have life. I pray that for you. Walking this aisle won't do it for you. Saying a secret prayer won't do it for you. But just turning your life and trusting in Jesus. Saying, Lord, you alone, you alone are my hope. You alone, Christ, do I put my faith for today and for eternity. Just call out to him. Call out for the grace of God. Would you bow with me, please? My gracious Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. I, I pray, Lord, that it been shared with clarity and, and with understanding. And, and Father, that you just might encourage people. I know there are individuals sitting in this place today that they're dealing with suffering in their life. And God, I know. I know it's really easy sometimes that we really just kind of want to just throw in the towel. And we just kind of wish that the end would get here and that'd be it. Lord, help us remind us of that hope that we have in Christ Jesus. That regardless of the number of days that we have, Father, that we would live those days in such a way that, that you are honored and glorified and that our life has meaning and our life has purpose. Increase our trust, Father. And I pray for individuals that's never come to a saving faith. Maybe they have joined churches or been baptized and all that stuff, but, but never really saw themselves as sinners separated from God. 
helpless and hopeless without him. And they just willingly and joyfully came to Christ by his drawing and trusted him. So God be glorified. In Jesus' name I pray.